Good morning. We have gathered to worship God, and the good news is that even as we were gathering, God was already in the initiative pursuing us by His grace. We are simply responding to a God who's already at work to draw us to Himself, to make Himself known, and to give us, in the power of the Holy Spirit, a heart that would give him praise. Our call to worship is a responsive reading from Psalm 57. So I'll ask, we read this responsibly, I'll begin. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. We will praise you, Lord, among the nations. We will sing of you among the people. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the sky. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Let us join together and exalt God as we sing, holy, holy, holy.
and amen. Have a seat if you would, please. Well, greetings. We have gathered on site here this morning to worship, to lift up our voices, and we thank you for the opportunity to join those of you who are online for whatever reason, whether it's geography or health, uh, travel, whatever it may be. You give us, as we gather here, the opportunity to be with you, whether by live stream or by recording, in a marvelous way. God binds his people together because we are bound together by the Holy Spirit in the gospel, time and place are strictly secondary. Isn't that marvelous to think about? God is good. Well, today after our service, we'll have a fellowship time, and then I like to gather and give folks opportunity about 10, 15 for the follow-up with the pastor. That's when you can ask questions, we can interact, uh, dig deeper with things that you may have brought. Uh, so those things are important. A couple of announcements. I'll start with the uh, sad things. This week, we had two folks pass away, uh, Sharon Lettinga, uh, and we're still waiting to figure out final arrangements on that. I understand Bill is back in Western Michigan. He'd actually been in Florida when she passed. He was in the hospital, and so it's been uh, pretty up in the air, but we're figuring these things out as we can. Uh, so we want to remember that family. And then Jerry Bowcamp. Um, for Jerry, the visitation will be uh, Tuesday afternoon at Langland, but we want to remember AJ and our prayers. And then earlier this week, uh, we gathered to, to, for one last memorial for uh, Tina Niehoff and remember her. Again, a particular generation. This has really struck me deeply that um, this was a part of Hardawike who remembers her front door as a child being broken in by Nazis. You know, that's part of our history and our story that's passing on at this point. So uh, we bear those together as the body of Christ. We also move forward in joy and in hope. I'm encouraged. I promised Helene Van Campen that I would wave to her on behalf of all of you. She said, I'll be on the couch navigating chemo, but I'm gonna watch. So. Here's to you, Helene. And uh, Doug Larman could get chemo on Wednesday and still be here. That's pretty amazing. Anytime, you know, sometimes folks will say, well, I, I just wasn't feeling well. Sorry, Doug, I'm going to think about you and say, chemo? It's amazing how that works. So we're glad to be together in joy and in uh, sorrow as those things go. Key announcements. Uh, Holy Week services coming up. Well, next week is Palm Sunday. Uh, we'll have an all Heart of Wyke Maundy Thursday service. It'll be representative folks and participants from all three communities. And then Sunday is Easter. And I'm going to ask you later on to begin praying about two things for Easter, inviting and welcoming. Um, I'm not a real big one on advertising campaigns or mailings or this or that. There's nothing better than a person sharing with a friend, you know, I'm hearing the gospel in ways that are encouraging, join me. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, we also have our online connect card. If you will take this number, 616-202-1210, and simply text CONNECT, That'll send you a form and you can give us information so that we can get you our weekly celebration uh, emails. I send an 
email out for celebration exclusively in addition to the one for Heart of White generally. The other thing I realized, today, if last Sunday was National Pretzel Day in Luxembourg, I want you to know that today begins National Library Week in the United States. Uh, Deb Whitbeck, who's our librarian and typically helps with our tech team, is celebrating the uh, wedding of a daughter from yesterday. But I'm going to take this chance to talk about how wonderful our library is. I was walking through and saw this book in our library, What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. I don't mind telling you, this book has been one of the single most influential books in my life in terms of making the transition from a moralistic, church-going pastor to a gospel-centered, free-in-God's-grace preacher. This book, more than any other single volume, would probably be that. And then Mary Lynn, pastor's wife that she is, that same author, one of her favorite books is Soul Survivor. And here's the subtitle. How My Faith Survived the Church. If you're wondering how the gospel is different than church life, Philip Yancey is one of the best people you can read and right here in our library. So thanks to Deb, congratulations to her family. Get a good book and strap yourselves in. We are together with Pastor Bill at the helm. I already had some folks say, Pastor Bill, you're wearing a tie, what's happening? I want you to see the world like I do. Yes, there's a tie. But inside those shoes, I'm barefooted. <laughs> We're together as God's people. Is that good news? Let's confess our faith. A Heidelberg Catechism question number 27 again focuses on the providence of God. When it looks like the world is out of control, we need to come back to biblical truth. And here's a good one for us now. What do you understand by the providence of God? The almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Let's set our hearts to meditate on this special music and the goodness of God.
Thank you all. Um, you know, one of the most exhausting things you can ever face in life is trying to manage your image. It's kind of easy to do on Facebook because only things that get up there are what you put up. But in real life with real people, if you've got to manage what they think of you and maintain a reputation, it's exhausting. And so that hymn, as they played the melody, grace that's greater than all my sin. Imagine if we really lived in that freedom that God has given me a grace to live and my sin may be here. I'm not going to have to manage that image anymore, but God's grace is bigger. Do you see where the freedom of the gospel comes? It's being free to be honest. Um, I read an interesting piece before we pray and to kind of set our hearts on this. Um, a post this week by a delivery driver, one of the guys who's uh, working with UPS and FedEx, you know, these folks for Amazon getting everything to our doorsteps these days. His job has become more and more driving through neighborhoods and running to front doors with packages. And he's seeing more and more yard signs he talked about. And we've seen those. They're in our neighborhoods as we drive around. The one that captured his attention and was the center of this article was one that says, all are welcome here. And he knew that that was becoming a kind of a political uh, buzzword and conviction. And so he was seeing that and folks were standing for that and putting it in their yard so people knew very clear about it so that all the world could understand. Well, he did some research that night when he got home, got on Google and was able to confirm that in that zip code, the median home price was $2 million. All are welcome here, but only a select few could be my neighbor. There's an irony there that we really need to catch and, and wrestle with. Because I think the church can be very much like that. We like to think of ourselves as welcoming. We might put a sign on a church website, friendly church. And often we are friendly to our friends. You see the challenge? It's a little different sometimes to have close friends and yet to be purposefully inviting of those who aren't here and welcoming to those who show up. I want to encourage you as we come into a particular season where now COVID has been beginning to fall away, the restrictions and concerns with that, people are out, it's been a hard time. It is a hard time. This is a great time for you first to begin praying for friends and family and neighbors. Secondly, to consider inviting. We're going to kind of focus all of Easter on welcoming people well special things for the kids, special music, uh, the hymns that we love related to Easter and the good news, all of that. But none of it works unless we as a body invite and then welcome. Plan over the next weeks to call your friends on Saturday and spend Sunday meeting someone you don't know. Let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness to us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the grace that you've shown us. And as we see today in the scripture, the grace that's bigger than our sin. Father, sometimes we need to face our sin to really 
understand how big your grace is. So make this a safe and honest place to do that. I pray for Hardawake Ministries, the umbrella of good things that you are doing through your people. We pray for Neighbors Plus that reaches into our community, for the missionaries that go out. But most of all, I pray for each person connected with Hardawake that they would grow deep roots into your word and presence and bear glorious fruit, not only Sunday mornings, but Monday through Saturday. We pray for Pastor Aaron and for Watershed. We give you thanks as we feel like we've identified the new worship leader there at Watershed. Be with Drew as he will begin to serve in that way. We pray for Fusion and for Pastor JB as they worship and again come to your word. We pray for Mission that'll be meeting right here and Pastor Florencio preaching right from where I stand in just a few hours. We're reminded that you've called us to bring the good news to every tribe and tongue and nation. And so thank you that we see the glorious diversity of your outreach in that way. Father, we are a particular part of Heart Awake, celebration. And we ask you to move in our midst right here. We come to you with particular prayers. It's a long and full prayer list. So I want to pray and give you space to pray specifically, but I want to pray for those who are sick, who've had difficult uh, diagnoses, who are struggling with health concerns. We lift them to you, Father. And for those who are recovering, Lord God, perhaps through a season of sickness, Perhaps now the challenge of rebuilding, we pray for the recovering, that you'd be encouragement and strength and grace. Speak names of people in your circle of relationships to the Lord. And finally, Father, we pray for those who are in grieving, who are on the journey perhaps recent, perhaps months, even in this moment, years ago, as it comes to mind. Thank you that the Holy Spirit has been named by Jesus as comforter. And so I beseech you, comforter, be present in deep and powerful ways with your people. Lord God, we thank you that when all else around us seems to be breaking down, you are our solid rock. Thank you for your word that by your grace you've spoken into human language that we might know of you. But I thank you that what you teach us about you draws us to you face to face. Thank you for the miracle of the incarnation that God the Son would take on human flesh and know life as we face it. Thank you that he is a giver of peace and of joy. When our circumstances fall apart, he is still good. Father, I pray for uh, each member of celebration, everybody connected, that we'd begin to pray right now because good things become the fruit of what has been prayed. We pray for people that we might invite, and we pray for those you would bring that we might welcome them well. 
May they find a place where image does not need to be managed because the grace of Jesus is the biggest thing of all. Father, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2 that we should pray for those in authority over us, that we might live lives of peace and make the gospel clear. So we pray in our regular cycle for our local government and agencies, for Holland City, for Park and Holland Township, reaching out to Ottawa County, to the various school boards, uh, public and private, charter, indeed, homeschools, every place that, that the training and nurturing of children takes place. Guide our decisions, Father. Make us aware of your good plans and blessings and our responsibilities. Father, as we pray for the missionaries from Heart of Waik, I'm reminded that today is the second day of Ramadan, a Muslim f- fast when those, uh, when, when Muslims gather and seek you, I pray that many Muslims over the next 30 days would discover that Isa al-Masih, the Arabic for Jesus, that they would discover that he is not just a prophet, but he is Yahweh in the flesh. And they would turn from submission to Allah, to the grace of Yahweh, the Lord, the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for the extraordinary work you're doing among Muslim people groups over the past few decades. We pray that many would come to faith in Christ. Finally, Father, we pray too with sadness as we see the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so I would pray the words of Deuteronomy from chapter 20 where Moses exhorted his people, when you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them. Because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. When you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. You shall say, hear, O Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified by them. For the Lord, your God, is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies. Father, we do pray for shalom in Ukraine, that where there's been death and destruction, there would grow up a peace and a hope. We pray there'd be resolution to um, warring and to atrocities. We pray your grace. Be with the missionaries who even now are there, even now are serving. Be with those who grieve, and indeed on both sides, war is an atrocious thing. We pray, Father, for your shalom. Thank you for Jesus, who is the peace giver. Father, in these and all things, you've called us to first be a people of prayer. And so we join together, one heart and one voice, the words that Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen and amen. 
Well, we're preaching through the Exodus experience, how the nation of Israel was delivered by God's grace. God raised up Moses. We looked at his life, uh, how then he brought them out of the nation of uh, Egypt where they were held in slavery. And where we ended last week was not really a high note. It was uh, Israel worshiping the golden calf. And so today I'm going to pick up from that moment with the golden calf and we'll see how God makes himself known even in the worst of our times. Uh, We'll be looking at Exodus chapter 34 verses 1 through 9. Follow me as I read. The Lord... Notice capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is not the position of high and lifted up. This is the person of Yahweh who revealed himself in the burning bush, who we know now is in the flesh, Jesus. But that's the proper name of God. Not just a position, but a person. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I'll write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up to Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and the herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones, and he went up on Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, Yahweh, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and in faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and he worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Let's pray. O Lord, our God and Father, we see in Israel our own wandering hearts. We know of your blessing. We hear the stories. We've had the moments. And yet, there are silent times when our fear overtakes us and we look to other things. Thank you that our brokenness is nothing new to you, even if it might be new to us. Thank you that your provision is clearer now to us than it was to Moses. Thank you that even in that moment, as Moses and Israel lived through this, it would eventually get committed to writing, and then preserved and passed down across the centuries, that we might, as it were, step into the scene, read, but watch and hear. Most of all, I pray that we, like Moses, might see. We might see a living God who loves us and who's called us as his. For we make our prayer in the name of Jesus, God the revealed. Amen and amen.
We pick up from last week, from the golden calf, now through a whole series of events and problems. Israel is not on their best behavior. One mistake leads to the next. As I was working through this text, I remembered a moment as a parent where late at night, Mary Lynn and I got a call, and it was one of those phone calls you hate to get as a parent. Just that day, we had loaded up one of our children, they will remain anonymous, and sent them north on the interstate with plans for them to turn left, that is to head west at some point, and by that night to be ensconced in their summer plans and program. They should have already been there, and we got that phone call, Dad, how close should I be getting to New York City? I was so glad this child called because we were able to get them settled, get them turned around and focused. See, it turns out they'd gone up the highway and made a right turn to the east. And then having made that turn, uh, not sure the next one was unexpected, but they thought that would probably be good. And then the next and the next, we got them calm. They got there. It now becomes one of those funny moments in life. You just remember that sometimes one decision sets you up for a, a next decision and a next. Cascading consequences. You make a mistake and it sets you up for the mistake. You choose the wrong and it sets you up for other wrong things. It was a good description of the nation of Israel with their decision to worship the golden calf, that idol. What follows is the story of Israel navigating through the rubble of their sin. In chapter 32, verses 1 through 9 in Exodus, we read that story of the golden calf. Things are quiet for a little while. Mary Lynn and I were talking at breakfast this morning about how, boy, sometimes we can see God do mighty things. We can have those glorious memories, but there's a moment of silence. And it doesn't matter about the calendar. There's just something pressing in that moment of silence. And I go looking for a security. It was less than six months from the time that Israel left their slavery in Egypt to the time they received the Ten Commandments and then finally the golden calf. Six months from miracle to revelation to idolatry. It happens so fast. Cascading consequences, the things that follow from that moment. Moses, in his anger, throws the stone tablets down. They're destroyed. That sign of God's presence, his finger had inscripted the Ten Commandments, destroyed, lost. The next thing that happens is a kind of an, an odd moment. But Moses takes that golden calf, burns it, destroys it grinds it up, puts it in water, and they all have to drink. It's a take your medicine moment. There are consequences. They may well be bitter. Face what you need to do. But the lowest point for me in this walking through the rubble of their sin is when the Lord is distant. I will, you go into the promised land, the Lord says, but I will not go with you. You are so stiff-necked and rebellious that my holiness would be dangerous to you. Go on. 
but not with me. It's a cascade of consequences. One bad decision sets up a bad decision with bad options. Next, you find yourself choosing between options that are bad or worse. And eventually, you face a decision where you're choosing the lesser of two evils. How is it when you choose the lesser of two evils, you're still choosing evil? And perhaps it would be time to stop, breathe deep, and say, how did we get here? How did we get to a place where everything before us is a bad option or an evil option? How did my heart get so hard and bitter? I remember avoiding reconciliation. I, I know that unforgiveness mounts and intensifies over time. Anger grows stronger. But how did I end up in this state of heart? Friends, we need to be reminded through the scripture daily that decisions have consequences. And the consequences add up one by one. And you can end up where you never intended to go. I've got stories like that. How did I end up here? Well, I didn't just wake up that morning and decide. Little by little by little, decision by decision, in the midst of this truth, this is the truth in which we live, there is good news. And it's this, my bad decisions, my mistakes do not have final determination in my life. Have I made mistakes and bad decisions? Sure. Are those the final definition of my life? No. Why? Because Jesus went to the cross. Jesus went to the cross and he offers me something different, something better. Israel would discover that the Lord was at work even as they were facing a cascade of consequences and bad decisions. Ponder that. They could choose poorly God could say in the very words of Joseph, Genesis 50, 20, oh, you meant it for evil, but I'm going to work it good, for good that many might be saved. One place we see this happening in this text is in the life of Moses. It's a very interesting transition. If you step back and kind of look across the whole book of Exodus like we've done in our preparation, you'll see a change in Moses. The Lord has been building an intercessor. The Bible Project, and we have some links in our sermon resources blog. You can dig deeper into this, and I really encourage you to do that because this week, there's just a lot of deep, rich stuff. There's a change that's happened in Moses. When we first see him in chapter 3, he's in the desert. He was raised in the best of circumstances, miraculously saved, given the best education. But he uses that of his own initiative, commits murder, ends up on the backside of the desert. And when he meets Yahweh in the burning bush, he is nothing but objections. There's five particular objections. You'll see them in the sermon outline. But something changes between Exodus 3 and Exodus 32. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? Again and again, we look to our resources and are amazed at the lack. 
We see our shortcomings. We know our fears. But look what's happened over time with Moses in Exodus 32, this that we look at today. Moses sought the favor of Yahweh, his God. Yahweh, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it is with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants. I underlined this in verse 13. Remember your servants. Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I'll give your descendants all this land I've promised, and it will be their inheritance forever. Something has happened to Moses. In chapter 3, who am I? How could I do this? By chapter 32, he knows God, and so his prayer is standing on the promises, the covenants, remembering and being focused on what God has said and revealed himself. Moses is still a man, but he's a different man, not because he's been to seminary, not because he's achieved this or avoided that, but because he's met God face to face. He's been spending time with the Lord, and as a result, Moses is becoming a different person. More and more, his perspective, his values, his value that motivate his decisions, they're shaped by the Lord. He comes on this crisis in chapter 32, and he looks to the covenants of God. He looks to God as his hope. Not who am I, but God, remember who you are. And this happens a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth time. You, you can look through these. I won't spend a lot of time in them. But I want to point out to you that in the midst of this rubble, God is building a man of prayer. We've all lived through seasons of life that just seem to be rubble. It's easy to look at the brokenness and the consequences of that cascade in and just say, I could never. Who am I? What if they don't believe? Moses, in the midst of his rubble, has learned to say, God is this way. This is God. This is my hope. Friends, it makes a difference. In the midst of this rubble, the Lord is building an intercessor. He's changing his life. What if all the challenges of your life have been events that the Lord desires to work in you to make you a person of prayer. Not just remembering your laundry list of requests, but coming before the Lord and joining with Him in His work through intercession. One of the great things that happens in Moses' life in this particular passage, as well as through all of Exodus, is what we'll call the self-revelation of God. God is making himself known to Moses. This is not about Moses. Well, I wonder what God is like. Oh, I've heard the story and God is sort of like that. No, this is God entering into human existence from outside and saying, this is me. Now, there's much thought and conversation if you follow uh, those sorts of things about religion being no more than a projection of human experience. This, if you will, is the critique of Sigmund Freud. 
I disagree with him, though I see what he's speaking about. Many people think that our faith is nothing more than taking our desires and projecting them in big. I, I want some security, so there must be this big security in the sky. Friends, I want to tell you that's not what's happening here. God himself is speaking to Moses. This isn't Moses figuring out what he believes about God. This is God making himself known. Now, it's right and appropriate that sometimes we'll learn about God from aspects of our life. Do you remember David, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd? David there is meditating on God, and he realizes that things he knows about in his life as a shepherd also help him understand something about God. As a shepherd, I want to protect my sheep. As a shepherd, I act in their best interest even when they don't understand it. God does that. But those kind of human to divine considerations are never perfect. You got to know when they work and when they don't. David never once thought, the Lord is my shepherd. He must have stinky sandals. That doesn't work. You see, that's what you always run into when you begin to go from the person to God. You get a God of your own making, a God outlined by my comfort zone, a God outlined by my interests, by my abilities to understand. No, with the self-revelation of God, God enters into human experience and he says, I don't know what you think of me, but here's what I'm like. It's as if to say, Bend yourself to me rather than bend me to your desires. That's what's happening right here in chapter 34 at the very end of this passage. Moses meets God and God makes himself known to Moses on his terms. He enters into to human existence. Friends, this passage, verses 6 and 7, is one of the most often quoted or referenced statements within the whole Bible. It's used in the Old Testament. It's used in the New Testament. Because what it is, what they understood it to be, what we need to recognize it as, is God from outside human existence has spoken into it. And he wants to shape our understanding of who he is. It's set up in two couplets or arrangements of statements. I'll look at the first five just real quickly and briefly. It says, the Lord, the Lord that emphasis by repetition and his personal name, not the concept of God, not the tradition of our confession, but the presence of the Lord speaking to Moses. The Lord, the Lord is compassionate. The Hebrew word here is related to womb. It's, it's meant to remind us of a mother's heartfelt love who'll wake up when she hears her child weeping in the night that compassion, quick to care. You might also think mama bear out of that one. The Lord who is gracious. I like to use the term grace motivated. Part of what God is saying here is that we need to see his actions, even his judgments, as expressions of his grace. How does the judgment of God express his grace? Because that's who he is at the center. He is long-tempered was the term I wanted to use, or slow to anger. He's not quick to fly off the handle. How often are we like a, a, a quick trigger? 
oh, I've been waiting to say this. Have you ever played that response in your mind? You're just waiting for a person to say something because you've been cultivating this snappy response for a good week. They never quite set the trigger, but I better just shoot anyhow. God is so different than that. That's why the, the judgments and the wrath of God are different than human wrath. God is slow to anger. He, it may be hard when he arrives, when the storm arrives, but it's always slow to come. His loyal love, the next one I touch, the Hebrew word there again is chesed. It's about covenant love. It's about in terms of a relationship, there's a commitment that's bigger. It's what, what you experience through the lifetime of a marriage. Every marriage moves forward on commitment. Some days the love is easy, some days it's not. But this is a commitment that shows itself in love. The Lord is faithfully true to his promises. He has made promises and he's good. That's why Moses, when he prays, he goes back to the covenants and the promises of God. That's the first couplet, these five and let me be honest, let's ponder this for a moment, friends. This is not what the prophet Muhammad says about the God that he speaks for. You know, his God, Allah, Allah, the distant, the absolute, the unchanging, maybe, but Allah, the loving, Allah, with a mother's love, Allah, loyal, speaking about two different God's. This is Yahweh's self-revelation. This would be nearly beyond understanding for people in this time. We've never seen or heard a God like this. It may be beyond understanding in our own time. Oh, we thought God was judgmental. We thought it was about the law and behavior and voting this way or doing that or not doing that. No. It begins with God and his self-revelation, a mother's love, true to his word. Well, the next four uh, in this verse, he begins, committed to thousands, maintaining love is that verb. He's got a love, he maintains it, it goes out to thousands. The picture you should have in your mind here is a, a love that gathers and touches a bigger crowd than you could ever see. Have you ever been in the midst of a thousand people? It's kind of big and overwhelming. Look, all of these people, how many generations is that? I don't know, it's more than we can count. How many generations in your family would it take to include thousands? More than you could imagine. And that's God. He's committed to the thousands. He's forgiving. And he forgives, it says very clearly here, wickedness, rebellion, and sin. I'm feeling like I'm covered. My wickedness, my rebellion, my sin. God forgives it here in Exodus. This is the God who's being revealed. Please don't tell me, oh, the Old Testament is a God of wrath and law. It's the New Testament where God becomes loving. No. In the Old Testament, this is how God reveals himself, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving. In the New Testament, he just comes and does it in the flesh. That's what Jesus is about. The next thing, number eight, 
He is not in denial. Now the scripture says, the way it states this, is he will not acquit the guilty. Interesting. He does not leave people unpunished when they're guilty of wickedness and rebellion and sin. So when those three things mark me, he's not going to let me off the hook. And here's where we have a paradox, a problem of sorts. We've just read that the Lord is forgiving. And in the same breath, he's saying he will not acquit the guilty. He's not about to leave the guilty unpunished is the way to put that. Let that settle in your thinking. It's not one to, God is not one to overlook or forget about or or just move on. You know, a lot of times in relationships or as a parent, I know you did this or did that, but I'm just moving on. I can't deal with it. That's not like God. God is forgiving, but he does not let the guilty off the hook. I want to tell you something. As I pray, I'm only too aware that the Lord, if he is who he says he is in the scripture, is not letting Vladimir Putin off this hook. The instigator of an invasion and of death, that's rebellion and sin. It will face punishment. Have you ever had to sit with a mother who's been abandoned or emotionally abused by a husband? I have. And when I'm there, I know the Lord will not leave that husband unpunished. Wickedness, rebellion, sin, he does not ignore them. Even more painfully, the silent bitterness in your heart, bitterness that's hiding behind that smiling face of avoidance, the sin that breaks things, and hurts people, that cannot go unpunished or undealt with. There's a debt. There's a deficit. Things are not as God created them. Something needs to be fixed. How are we to resolve this tension? Forgiving and not in denial? We begin to see the resolution of it in the final statement. Yes, he will judge, he will punish the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. The readers of this in the original context would have been amazed that punishment goes to three or four generations. Maintaining love goes to thousands. They would have been struck by the imbalance. We tend to be, as Westerners, a bit horrified that, oh, punishing the the children and the grandchildren? No, look at this in context. He maintains his love to thousands, but his judgment is taken care of quickly. We see this extraordinary difference. His blessing, extensive. His judgment, limited and small, only to three, maybe four generations. It's meant to stand in contrast. Friends, here is what this voice is not, what this verse is not pointing to. Do not picture a frowning God on his throne throwing angry lightning bolts of trouble and heartache because of other people's sin at you. Oh, I get it that you're being good, but did you know that your great-grandfather, he played baseball on a Sunday afternoon in his blue jeans. That's not God. See, we live in a world where consequences cascade. You know, my great-great-grandfather was mentioned in the New York newspapers as the millionaire butcher of Manhattan. My great-grandfather lost it all. 
And so my grandfather's life was different. My father's life was different. Decisions have consequences. The good news of the gospel is that God takes those consequences upon himself. This is what we know now that could not have been known by Moses. We know that what might have been too much for Moses to comprehend, we look at the cross and we realize that Jesus, Yahweh in human form, would one day take the just punishment upon himself. That's the hope for my children and my children's children and to the third and fourth generation from my brokenness. It's not that I will behave well. That's already off the table. It's not that they can behave well. It's that the consequences of my bad decisions can be, they can be rescued from that by what Jesus did at the cross. How can the Lord show himself to Moses as a God who is both forgiving and who does not let all sin go unpunished? It's because he took the punishment upon himself. All for wicked, rebellious, sinful people like me. He's given new life, more than I deserve, more than I could earn, more than I could ask or imagine. I love the passage in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There's that image management. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. But chapter 2, verse 1, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is, and here's the answer. Here's how the paradox is resolved. He is the atoning sacrifice, the sacrifice that pays the price and sets things back from broken to fixed. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but for the rest of the world. Moses had met the living God. He'd been to the mountaintop. He dared to obey. He'd seen God at work within his own eyes. And that experience changes you. It's not just a tradition or a seminary degree or conforming to the pressures of my culture. It's a living God who changes our life. Today is an anniversary, the anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King's last sermon. Now, I had to laugh. I was doing my research to get all my things right on this. And on Google, they keep talking about his speech. Well, friends, let me tell you something. He was giving this speech at the national headquarters of the Church of God in Christ, one of the largest Pentecostal denominations in the United States. Martin Luther King, in his daily rhythms, baptized people, visited the sick, led communion. He was a pastor. I know what that life is like. And in a church, and this is how the brother preaches, as my African-American friends would say, only somebody who's never been to an African-American church would think this is a speech. This is a sermon. He says, well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. He saw in Moses God's work in his life, and I don't mind. 
Like anybody, I'd like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up on the mountaintop and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. In less than 24 hours, he would be assassinated. But you see, like Moses, centuries before him, like Mary, the first one to see the risen Jesus at the empty tomb, Dr. King would be surrounded by a cloud of witnesses who point to the living God and he himself. This is a man who's seen the living God and viewed his promises out of that encounter. He, like Moses, wants to obey. He lives with joy. He rests with fear. He's fully aware of the brokenness and danger, but he has seen the living God. And so he wants to obey and he's ready to follow. He's not simply repeating history or making a strategic plan. He's not found security in the circumstances of this world. Having met God, he will follow. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Whose glory are you seeing? What do you love and what are you pursuing? More than a tradition, more than an idea, the living God who we meet in the scripture, who responds to us in our prayer, who says, come unto me, that God will equip you for all that he has for you. What an adventure. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are more than just an idea or tradition, but even our godly tradition points us to a living relationship. So I pray you'd give us a thirst in your word and in the place of prayer that our fellowship would be fellowship that draws us to Jesus, not just entertains us in the moment. That in these things, we might see you and know you. And that in these confusing times, we might live with a hope and with a grace that only comes from your presence. It's amazing to me that Moses in these chapters keeps saying, unless you go with us, unless you go with us. And so it is, Lord. We would be bold to say that it's you we need, not the power of the world, not the peace of our circumstances. We would follow you, for great is your faithfulness. We thank you, and we love you, and we trust you. Be with us. Hear us as we pray and as we sing the great promises. For we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. We'll sing together a great hymn of faith. If you're able to stand, join us in that way, but let's enter into all that this tells us.
receive the benediction, the blessing of our God from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. May the grace of Christ, which daily renews us, and the love of God, which enables us to love all, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, which unites us in one body, make us eager to obey the will of God until we meet again through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen.